Welcome back to Future Americas podcast, a series featuring the voices of the next generation of leaders of the Americas. In this episode, Tim and I speak with Jacqueline Maldonado Ortega, a brilliant changemaker from Mexico. Drawing upon her experience as a Latina, a scholar of international politics and economics, and a budding diplomat, Jacqueline gives us a nuanced look at Mexican identity and diversity, as well as the myriad challenges the country must confront in the post-COVID world. The phrase Mexico Magico is spot on. As all visitors to Mexico can attest, there is truly a magic to the place, from the gorgeous beaches, valleys, and rich biodiversity, to their colorful cities and towns, each with their own distinct characters and hidden treasures, to the absolutely unforgettable knock-your-socks-of-cuisine, Mexico is one of a kind. Alongside Mexico's color and vibrancy, however, the country faces numerous growing challenges. The country's COVID-19 crisis has claimed more than 200,000 lives and produced the country's largest economic recession on record. Mexico's raging drug conflict claims more and more lives each year, and persistent inequalities along racial, gender, and socioeconomic lines constrain opportunities for large segments of the country's population. Amid these deepening challenges, Mexico is in need of bold, inclusive leadership from all sectors of society. Jacqueline shares her perspective on what and who those leaders will need to think about as they strive for a better Mexico for all. Welcome back to Future America's podcast. We so appreciate you joining us as we continue to explore the identities, challenges, and opportunities that define the next generation's experience in the Americas. Tim and I are very excited today to be chatting with Jacqueline and to dive deeper into a country we all hold very dear in our hearts, Mexico. Jacqueline Maldonado Ortega is a graduate in business and, and uh, business strategy from Tecnológico de Monterrey um, with a uh, study in business at Columbia University. She also has a master's in international political economy from London School of Economics and Political Science. She's worked as a business consultant with Deloitte as a columnist of Latin American political economy and she is currently the youth representative for Mexico for the G20 and the Youth 20 Summit under the Italian presidency. Jacqueline is passionate about gender politics and socioeconomic development of vulnerable populations. Jacqueline, it is such a pleasure to have you with us here today to discuss Mexico. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So Jacqueline, where are you calling us from today? Where in, where in Mexico? I'm calling from Oaxaca, which is a place that no many people have heard of, but I, I promise you it's really cool. <laughs> it's a very <laughs> kind of traditional state that has a lot of indigenous population. And Oaxaca, Oaxaca is a place that I have never visited, but is definitely on my, my Mexico travel list, uh, bucket list. So, so someday. You should, we have the best food, just saying. <laughs> Ooh. Of course. I mean, we're, we're saving that to the end of the conversation. We have plenty <laughs> of questions about good Mexican food. <laughs> Great. But um, I think to, you know, start off the conversation, um, one thing that would be worth investigating a little bit further is kind of thinking about what it is to you, uh, what does it mean to be Mexican, a Mexicana, Mexicano, Mexican ex? Well, for me being Mexican, particularly because I come from a state that has a huge indigenous population for me being Mexican goes hand in hand with belonging to a mestizo country which means blended country there's not a literal translation but I think that's as close as it gets and 
for me, that means being proud of my indigenous ancestry, which has managed to survive and thrive. And also for me, being Mexican goes hand in hand with my identity as a Latina. So I feel that I belong to a bigger community and I have this shared identity with a lot of people that we have similar history and similar culture as well. Right. So it's super interesting that you talk about the indigenous identity in Latin America, right? Because that's something that a lot of people don't outside of Latin America know that that's a part of the experience. What do you think, right, when it comes to the Mexican identity and how it varies right from state to state, right? Versus places like Oaxaca, which is like out of its heritage and very, you know, deeply tied to those roots versus other states that, you know, might have different background identities or, you know, something that, I mean, coming from Latin America, we both have experienced this, kind of that suppression of the uh, indigenous identity. Well, I think that Mexico, and this is something that surprises a lot of people, Mexico is a very multicultural place. I think that there's this common image, you know, of this Mexican with the huge sombrero and, you know, the desert and so on. But this is actually a country with people that come from different backgrounds, different skin colors, different cultures. We have a huge amount of Japanese descendants, for instance, in Mexico, there's a huge community. Uh, we are very diverse. And as you said, it depends where you live in Mexico. In the South, I think it's, it's more related to the indigenous population. There's a lot of people with an indigenous ancestry. But then in the North, I, I would say it's more blended with the American culture. Uh, you know, we, we also kind of have like this Tex-Mex culture that starts, I would argue, from the north of Mexico to the south of the U.S. And then we also have, uh, for instance, Chicanos, right, which are Mexicans born in the U.S., but that they do identify very strongly as Mexicans. So I, I would say that the modern Mexican is very diverse and it's it's not necessarily, you know, what people would think as a Mexican. We're very multicultural. Right. And Jacqueline, uh, thank you so much. That's that's such a great way of, of yeah, explaining the diversity of Mexico. And so I uh, studied in Puebla uh, during my time in university. And one of my favorite things was uh, certainly learning about Mexican cuisine, but then particularly the elements of Mexican cuisine that went back thousands of years, you know, just things that you would pick up on the side of the street, you know, but that have this deep history in, you know, the indigenous roots. And so seeing how that is blended into the Mexican identity, it's a really fascinating thing. Um, so you mentioned the, um, you know, relationship uh, to, to the United States up, up north um, in the northern states. Um, that is also a, a topic that very much interests us. Um, so there's a saying, a famous saying uh, that, that some attribute to uh, Don Porfirio Diaz um, that says, pobre Mexico, tan lejos de Dios y tan cerca de Estados Unidos, which means poor Mexico so far from God and so close to the United States. So obviously a very strong characterization of the relationship between Mexico and the United States. But you know, for better or for worse, the history of Mexico has been shaped in no small part by Mexico's relationship with the United States and vice versa. Um, so what do you think about you know, the relationship between Mexico and the United States. And how do you think that relationship affects the Mexican identity today? Right, uh, just building upon the quote that you said, I think it's important to understand who said it, you know, Porfirio Diaz, who was Porfirio Diaz, and sure. when he said this. 
Um, well, Porfirio Diaz, he was a guy from Oaxaca, actually, um, <laughs> who became very popular. He built his political career by participating in the military. He, right. he, he, he didn't really like Americans because of that context that we <laughs> finished this Mexican-American war. And yeah. although he had like a very liberal approach when it came to commerce and trade, particularly with Europe, this was not the case with the US. He completely shut down. He didn't want to talk about the US. He didn't want to have any interactions with the US. And because of that for years, I think that we had this very unwanted neighbor relationship. Mm. Part. But, and I also think it's kind of funny that you mentioned that because I, I saw that AMLO, Andres Manuel López Obrador, who was the current president mm -hmm. of Mexico, he said that to Biden in one of I his know. <laughs> I saw that in their, in their <laughs> first meeting. Uh, as, exactly. As, which is a, an interesting way to start it off. <laughs> um, yes, although I, I, to be fair to uh, El, El Mandatario, um, I think that he did qualify that by saying, maybe we hope for something better. You know, we hope it's not tan, tan lejos de Dios. But yes, you're right. Yeah. It did. It is obviously a, a, a lasting concept. Exactly. And I think that AMLO said it to show how different that relationship is right now. It was an right. awkward way to say it, but I think that he had a point. Our relationship right. is very much different to what we had back then when Porfirio Diaz was the president. Mm -hmm. And Well, I would say that it has had pros and cons for Mexico, you know, to have this strong relationship with the U.S. as any other bilateral relationship. Uh, because we have associated so much with, you know, the, with the U.S., we have been able to attract a lot of a lot of foreign direct investment that has boosted our trade relationship, which has, you know, obviously boosted also our prospects for economic growth. It has had negative uh, consequences as well. I would say, like I said, as any other bilateral relationship, I think that we're equal in paper, but in mm. practice, there's obviously a power relation, right? Um, of course, the US has it's a bigger economy has stronger political power and some some scholars have argued that because of that mexico has been held back from associating with other countries that the u.s mm -hmm. might not be very friendly towards aka china mm -hmm. there's a lot of other um, latin american countries that have mm -hmm. been associating during the last few years with china you know in this south south cooperation context and some people have said that mexico is not so willing to do that because they don't really want to messed up with Washington. Right. Yeah, actually the the USMCA or TEMEC as it's known in Mexico includes a provision that is specifically directed at that that says that the member states in the treaty can't make trade agreements with quote unquote non-market countries and this provision is obviously directed at China. So yes, it is very very much, you know, the US has wanted Mexico to stay in its orbit, perhaps, you know, at the cost of some other relationships that Mexico could have had. I think that that's the example that I was looking for. We are very much, I don't want to say controlled, but our, our, our political decisions and our trading decisions depends a lot on this relationship that we have with the US. Right? So I would say that we're not 100% independent when it comes to making decisions within, you know, making multilateral trade relationships. Mm -hmm. uh, another thing that has not being so positive for Mexico, I think, is that I think that Mexicans have been placed in this rather awkward position in specific political terms, particularly when it comes to migration. You know, the US and Mexico share the most transited border 
in the world, right? So this is a very uh, salient element that has marked our relation, our bilateral relationship. And I think that Mexico has championed, you know, taking responsibility of southern countries' migration as well. And this has caused, for instance, Mexico donating money such that, you know, countries in Central America and South America would be able to create more employments despite Mexico having huge rates of unemployability, mm-hmm. which is something that Mexico has championed. You know, Mexico has always wanted to expand multilateral relationships benefits to other Latin American countries. But I think that this has caused somewhat of a misconception overall uh, within the US that this is completely Mexico's responsibility. It all relies on Mexico. It it just, it's kind of funny also that I think that people in the US see it as, you know, the US and then the entire, the rest of the continent is just Mexico because Mexico is responsible (laughs) for migration. I yeah, there's some there's some joke maps, you know, that are obviously very insensitive. That'll be like, it's here's Mexico, and then further south, there's you know Brazilian Mexico, <laughs> just because people don't people in the United States don't know the difference between these very different places. Exactly, I I, I saw that as well, and I thought it was really funny. Particularly <laughs> in Mexico, it was Mexico with llamas. I'm like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, llamas now, yes. So I think that yes, I think you're getting to some very, um, you know. Uh, very relevant tensions in the relationship, um, especially as you know the the Biden administration is is struggling with with flows of, of uh, migrants, um, which you know seems like there is some good collaboration happening between the governments. But we'll see if this is if there's a long term solution that can be found. Um, one other dimension of this that I wanted to ask about was about the cultural uh, influence that the countries have on each other. I have often been struck by how each kind of shapes the, the culture of the other. So certainly in the United States, we have a very significant Mexican population that for many years has been a, a, a significant part of our culture, contributing some of the best restaurants. And of those, I'm sure that the best are the Oaxaqueños. But, um, but then similarly in Mexico, you do have a lot of cultural influences. Like I was, I was uh, struck during my time in Mexico to find that there were a lot of followers of American football um, in, in Mexico, which I felt like was an interesting cultural interchange. So I guess, what do you, what do you think, you know, as a, as a young Mexican about how the culture of the, of the United States impacts Mexico and vice versa? I think that's an interesting topic, particularly, I think this has an influence depending on the region of Mexico that you are talking about. I used, I lived for a while in the northern part of Mexico, so I very, I'm very much acquainted with the Mexican-American life, you know, like the Tex-Mex life, which mm. is basically traveling a lot to the U.S. and, you know, having these weird Mexican-American accents like the one that I have. And, you know, that's that side of it. And I think that people that live in the north are very much open to you know, going to the US and having a lot of Americans coming to to Mexico and that's kind of normalized, but that is not so common in the South. I think that the South has, like I said, like a different cultural identity. They associate their Mexicanness with something which is completely different. And um, I would say that people in the South that are more open, so to speak, to, to absorb some of the American traditions or American culture schemes, come from the Oprah's social classes, right? Because they are the ones who have, you know, the money and the privileges and the the opportunities of traveling and going to the US, which is actually not 
that expensive. <laughs> There's so many Mexicans going every day to the US that flights and you know traveling schemes are somewhat affordable and it's it's easier for middle and higher social classes to go to the US and you know mix this Mexican American identity and bring some of that into Mexico. But I would say that in the South, because there's not many um, upper social class people, that is not as common. And that would be something that you would just find amongst the most privileged. Yeah, that's a really great point. I, I really appreciate how you think about the, the, you know, the influence of the United States, depending on the geography within Mexico, which again, is a very diverse place. Kind of uh, moving gears, right? It's gonna be really difficult, obviously, to discuss Mexico without the pandemic, right? And we all know uh, Latin America was especially hit by the pandemic, uh, especially hard. Um, Mexico, right, uh, it suffered a very difficult recession, uh, one that I don't think, uh, relative to any other recessions it's experienced in the past years, uh, is, was very, very deep. So I'd be interested in, we'd, we'd be interested in understanding how will opportunities be changing, right, post-pandemic, post-COVID in Mexico, especially, you know, for the new generation graduating from college, entering the workforce, um, and maybe even interested in, in partaking in these conversations that we're having now. Right. Well, that's a very complicated question, especially because if you take into consideration that Mexico was already not doing great before the pandemic, we were already having negative growth, negative GDP growth in 2019. So the pandemic just came to make things way, way worse. And uh, right now we're having the deepest economic decline that we have within the last 100 years which is impacting foremost young people, right? Like you said. Um, but I think when I thought about it, I think that when it comes to speaking about how this has had an impact on the youth, there's this narrative centered on how lucky young people have been during this challenging times. You know, like I think that the most frequent comments that I've heard is like, oh, young people don't get sick, they don't die. Also, there's this narrative about how only men are dying. So women seem to, young women seem to not have a place on regular conversations when in, in reality, the social and economic impacts have been suffered the most by young people, right? Um, I was doing some research and I found out that 55% of the total unemployed were under 29 in the formal sector. And in the formal sector, of course, the, the majority of employees come from privileged spheres, particularly in a country as Mexico, where the informal economy is huge. And the informal economy, which was hit the hardest, used to employ three out of every four young Mexicans. So that that's like a, a, a preview of how this has had such an acute impact, yes, on young people, but especially on minorities and people with less economic power, right? And I, I feel that we have this, this um, kind of victim role or we, we've been hit the hardest by this pandemic on the one hand, but on the other hand, we're also carrying this responsibility of taking economies and societies afloat, right? And I think that one sector that, that shows this very clearly is the healthcare sector in OECD countries, which Mexico is a part of, two thirds of the health and care sector are young people. And in Mexico, this healthcare sector is composed mainly by economically vulnerable people, right? So if they get sick or they get fired or they die because of COVID, 
their families are in very high risk of facing extreme poverty. And then, you know, if we think about this joblessness crisis, statistics show that young people, when they get fired, they join the front lines. They become deliverers, they become cleaners, carers, which is something that is already not very well paid, right? Um, so I think that we, we are in this very complicated position of being extremely vulnerable because of the social and economic effects the pandemic has had, whilst we also are holding the responsibility of keeping societies afloat. So Jacqueline, you touch upon a very pressing topic, uh, a challenge that we're also confronting here in the United States, which is that minority communities and low-income communities are disproportionately affected by the pandemic. What are your thoughts on how to practice solidarity with those communities in recognition of the higher price that they have paid throughout this crisis? Well, talking about minorities um, and building upon a little bit what I said about the healthcare sector being, you know, like the, the ones responsible for keeping societies afloat. Uh, if we think about the healthcare sector being composed 70% by women, I would say that women are actually the most vulnerable group, particularly mm -hmm. young women, right? And I think that the roots of this problem are very, very profound. <laughs> you know, like starting conversations around this issue are very, very deep. And there's this theory that the economist Naila Kabir, who specializes on feminist economics, says that labor markets are not based on productivity. They are not as objective as you know classical economists have stated. They follow gender identity rules. And so the sectors that are associated with typically female characteristics are usually undervalued and underpaid to reflect the inferior position of women in society. And I think that this is the case when you analyze the healthcare sector, right? And of all the pool, of all the health and care workers in Mexico, 50% of them are female care workers, such as nurses, midwives, hospital cleaners, and their work was already unrecognized and unpaid. So this is, this is a problem that we already have and that the pandemic has only made worse. Um, so how would we start a conversation about this? I think, like I said, this is a very complex problem that has, it's based on patriarchal structures, very rooted within society. So I think that an important part to consider when doing this conversation is, you know, basing on academia and data and how, um, you know, like acknowledging the problem, how we have a history of, making jobs that are associated with female characteristics underpaid and why are we doing that and how can we change that and i think that we also as young people have to acknowledge our kind of responsibility within the problem one of a huge problem in mexico is for instance um the lack of recognition of of cleaners of home cleaners so we do have an active participation in the perpetuation of this, you know, this barriers to reaching equality. And I think that a great first step would be to recognizing how we participate in those and what we can do on the individual level to make a change on the collective level. Jacqueline, thank you so much uh, for that answer. I especially appreciate how you blend 
you know, obviously you have your um, personal experience, but then you also put on your economist hat. And I, I really appreciate how you take us through those, those numbers. So the thing that I would want to delve into next is thinking about where we go from here. So we're certainly still living through the pandemic. It's, it's not going away just yet, nor are the economic conditions that it has created. Um, so what are your thoughts on, particularly in the economic space, on the economic future and the economic prospects for young Mexicans? And what would you like to see change or what, what do you think needs to happen for um, real opportunities to be created for young Mexicans? Oh, also a complicated question. <laughs> I think, you know, as, as a feminist and as someone who cares about social equality, I could say a lot of things. I can dream about a lot of things, you know. I would love to see a revaluation of the economy of how, you know, like what I said about having this gendered implications within labor markets that should be restructured. Um, and so on and so forth. But I think that would be being a little bit too ambitious right now. And uh, one particular struggle that young Mexican women have been facing, particularly since the pandemic started, is that the current administration has not supported them at all. Um, Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador has disappointed them, so to speak, because you know, feminists, particularly within the Latin American countries, expect from leftist governments to have a natural ally, particularly from someone who champions a discourse on human rights and how, uh, you know, like turning markets to benefit the people and so on. So this is gonna sound like not very ambitious and completely opposite to what I just said, but I think that a great first step would be to have some acknowledgement of the problem. Uh, especially since AMLO has said in several times that in Mexico, since he rose to power, there's no inequality, women are just doing great, and there's rights for everybody. I think a great first step, first start would be to acknowledge the problem, and uh, yeah, from a governmental perspective. And um, I think that other spheres from within society have to acknowledge their role on the participation of the perpetuation of the structures as well. Because I feel that at least in Mexico, firms and industries have treated the topic of inequalities and feminism and human rights as something that the government has to deal with. They have completely disassociated themselves from the problem. And I think that in theory, they do support you know, human rights, if you go into their web pages, their mission, their vision, they're all, we love women, women are the best, human rights <laughs> is our passion, you know. Mm -hmm. But if you do a little bit more of research, most firms are like, uh, yeah, we're gonna reach 50-50 women representation in 2091. So how much do you love gender equality? How much <laughs> do you love, you know, working towards human rights if you are not actively working to make things better? Especially mm -hmm. since, you know, in countries as Mexico, workplace harassment is a huge deal. So if, mm -hmm. you, if you really love human rights, if you really want to support women, you got to participate in this as well. It's not only a governmental issue. That from, you know, the government and the institutional perspective, but I also think that Mexicans on the individual level have a lot of work to do. 
I think that it's great that we are coming together in this social movement and protests and so on. But I feel that we also have to acknowledge, and I'm saying this particularly to people who are going to be listening to me who speak English or Spanish in our unprivileged societies mm. or in a privileged sphere. We have a lot of work to do to acknowledge how we, on an individual level, participate in the perpetuation of you know, mar marginalizing other groups. Because we do participate in that. We just, I get that it's scary and uncomfortable to acknowledge ourselves as oppressors, but if, if we have access to certain privileges and uh, belong to a upper social class sphere in Mexico, it is very likely that you have in some way or the other participated to perpetuate this. So we, we have to acknowledge our responsibility of changing that from within our individual levels. That is a very powerful point. I really appreciate you saying that, especially because it's true certainly throughout the world, but also especially throughout the region. It's true in the United States, it's true in other countries that um, the, the things will only change or they're most likely to change if the privileged recognize that privilege that they carry and try to use it to make things better for people who don't enjoy those same opportunities. Um, so one thing that I would just love to to um, follow up on, um, I, I can't help it as, as a, um, you know, a, as a fellow political science uh, student and a nerd, I'd, I'd love to just hear your thoughts, um, particularly about um, you know, Mexican politics and thinking about who is represented in um, the, the movements that, that are, that are um, ascendant in, in, in Mexican politics right now. You talk about uh, the president um, whose politics, which, which are you know, understood by, by a lot of people as populist, somehow don't include you know, women necessarily or, or certain other groups that are, that are being hurt by, by rules that are currently in place. And so I would just ask um, what you think um, would need to change or do you, do you have any thoughts on what a, a more inclusive uh, politics would look like in Mexico, particularly politics in favor of social change? I think that right now in Mexico, we're kind of at a crossroads, right? Because there's this part of the population and experts and scholars that have pointed out that AMLO has failed to deliver. He made a lot of promises. He said that the moment he would raise to power, everything was going to change and corruption was going to be diminished. And so therefore, Mexico was going to be the greatest country in the world, basically. But he has failed to deliver, right? Like you said, he has not been able to fulfill his promises to particular social groups that he had said that he would support and so on and so forth. But there's also this other part of the population who despite all these arguments and despite you know the mismanagement of the pandemic and the negative economic growth that Mexico is having right now, they are still rooting for him. There are a lot of people who still believe that he is going to ultimately change Mexico. And as of right now, I think it is confusing which part of the population wins, you know, which, which one has the most popular view. Do we want to change uh, the way that AMLO is approaching, approaching problems or are we gonna say that he's doing just great and that we believe in him? So I think that this, this would be better answered in June. We are in election season right now, which ends up in June. And there's a lot of Morena candidates. Morena is the political party that was 
created by AMLO. And so I think that it would very it will very much depend on the results of the elections, because if Morena candidates manage to still win the, the popular vote, it is very likely that AMLO is not going to change his current approach towards addressing social problems. But, you know, as democracies work within punishments and rewards, if he gets punished, if people don't vote for Morena candidates, I think that there would be a possibility for him to start reconsidering his strategy. But until that happens, I don't, I don't, I don't see a change coming anywhere near in the near future. Definitely a common theme that we're realizing, at least thinking about, right, uh, what needs to change down the line is how the Morena party could, you know, or in AMLO as well, um, deal, work with the population, if we could put it in that way, right? And obviously in the context of you know, Mexico's democracy. And a common trend that we've been seeing, right, all over the region and in Mexico especially is this disillusionment, right? And lack of faith in, in, in the institution, in the parties and authorities. And it raises the question, right, of what your opinion is on the future of Mexican democracy, right? And what could be done from Morena or the Mexican political institution on its own to strengthen government and maybe even diminish that disillusionment that the population has? Um, right, I think that right now, at least some, some political experts here in Mexico have been saying that Morena is right now facing a uh, fall down similar to other political parties that have tried to quote unquote change Mexico the same way that he has promised, such as Pan and PRD. Um, but I think that right now, the fact that Morena is failing is kind of getting us back into an equilibrium point. You know, this equilibrium point that it happens in Mexico, but I also feel that this is very popular within Latin America, that there's a permanent dissatisfaction within your government. There's just this permanent acceptance that this is how it works. This is not going to get any better because politics are corrupt and we should just accept that. And that has been reflected on an electoral abstentionism within Mexicans. So Mexicans have stopped believing that their vote makes a difference and that any political is ever going to be able to make a difference. So yeah, like I said, I think that the immediate future is that democracy at least in Mexico, will remain corrupt. And, you know, to fix this, there's, there should obviously be some changes within institutions, you know, of more transparency, more approachability, stating why, when, how information is published, uh, you know, to, to close the, the gap between constituencies and their representatives so that they could have like a more direct representation. But I think that what actually has to happen is that there should be a cultural shift from this perception that, you know, this is how government works and government is corrupt and there's nothing we can do about it. And this is a little bit related to what I was saying earlier about how we have to acknowledge our participation in political structures that don't work, right? I think that it's very easy to blame the government just to think, you know, politicians are corrupt and that's it. There's nothing I can do about it. And I think that Mexicans to see a change, to move away from this non-sustainable equilibrium point of thinking that just politics are corrupt and that's it. We have to analyze how corruption structures work. How do I participate? How can I help to bring down this 
corrupt structures. And we have to refuse to settle, right? We have to demand results. We have to demand representation. We, we can just accept that this is how we're going to live and how Mexican politics are gonna be forever. Um, nevertheless, I think that the young social movements are very efficient in doing this. They give me a lot of hope, particularly uh, the young environmentalism in Mexico and the young feminism, which have become increasingly vocal about their needs and how dissatisfied they are. And, you know, as we get older and we become part of the constituencies that are able to vote, if we keep on demanding more from the government, as, like I said, as democracies work through punishments and rewards, if we keep on pushing, eventually politicians will have to change such that democracy can exist, right? Because democracy exists so long as the people believe in it. And if the demands that we are having as young people are not being met, this, this could get dirty, right? <laughs> um, yeah, so if we, I, I believe that if we keep on pushing social movements led by the youth, we could actually accomplish social and political change in the long term. Good to hear. And again, I mean, coming from another fellow Latin American, you know, you noted something very powerful, which is this is an experience that we see all over Latin America. I mean, Ecuadorians are also very guilty of having that same conversation being like the, the institutions are faulty, president or the politicians will always be corrupt. And it really disillusions us to not participate when in reality, the solution is participation and being dynamic and, you know, taking that initiative. So I think that that will bring about the change that we're talking about. And, and Martin, I think we can rest assured, rest assured that Jacqueline will for sure be participating. They will not <laughs> keep her away. Um, so that, that is reassuring um, for, for all, all Mexicans, I'm sure. So Jacqueline, one other issue that, that I don't think we can avoid when we're talking um, about present day Mexico um, is violence. So Mexico for, for many years has um, had a, a, a very tough security situation with you know, drug-related violence, but then particularly in uh, recent years, there have been uh, movements ar around the, the particular issue of femicide, of, of violence directed against women or the killing of women because they are women. And you know, in this last uh, International Day of the Woman, uh, March 8th, we saw protests in Mexico City and all throughout the country against this trend. So I would just love to hear your thoughts on that particular issue and yeah, what, what needs to change to ensure that there is you know, justice for, for Mexican women who have been affected by this and also um, a guarantee of security for Mexican women going forward. Right, I think that the 8th of March in Mexico has become a huge deal, right? And if you take into consideration that Mexico is one of the most dangerous countries to be a woman. Um, and some of the statistics at the top of my mind is that 11 women die every day and 98% of sexual crimes go unpunished. That has certainly caused women to be mad. Everybody's angry. And you know the fact that they are in constant danger all the time, that has, I think that that has made women lost fear when it comes to making the movement radical. Right, so the, the Mexican feminist movement has very much become radical and it has also managed to create this sort of national female unity and female Mexican identity and Latin American even, I would say. Um, and I think that this has been very much fueled by the fact that this is not only 
a Mexican thing, right? This movement, it actually started in Argentina. This, there's a lot of people who say that we are in a new wave of feminism and it was sparked by Argentinian movements. And, you know, uh, movements like Ni Una Menos, um, Rapist in New Way, and so on and so forth. The fact that they get spread like fire throughout Latin America that has given women in Mexico a lot of courage and a lot of ambition to go and on radical ways ask the government to pay attention to these issues. And I think it's, it's a complicated thing to address it's, it's an issue that's been going on for years in Mexico and in most parts of the world. But, you know, a little bit like I said earlier, I think that AMLO first has to acknowledge that this is a problem, you know, and the fact that he goes every day in the morning and he says that the feminist movement is an imperialistic scheme that Mexican women are trying to copy from other parts of the world. And that actually in his government, men and women are already equal. That is obviously not going to change for, that's not gonna cause a change towards this problem, right? Um, so I think that acknowledging the problem should be the, the first step. It sounds very much not ambitious at all, but it's a necessary step. And I also think that the government has very much focused their narrative on responding women's demands by only putting a few women in power. And I feel that the narrative goes a little bit like, we're making Mexico City mayor a woman. We won, feminism has won. Everything's fixed. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I think that yeah, putting a few women in positions of power is definitely nowhere near enough what we need. Mm. And I think that uh, women who will actually get to those positions of power should actually be asking themselves what they're doing different than if they were men, right? It's not enough just to get a few women in the top positions if they're not doing anything to lift other women and to try to create new schemes to give women agency, particularly in a country that has a lot of women in marginalized fears. You know, how do we support indigenous women from a position of not assuming their needs from a position of power? You know, like I, I work for the government in a top position. I, have, I had access to a university education and therefore I know what's best for them. But I think that those women who actually get to the top should acknowledge that they have a responsibility of trying to give women agency in order to help them emancipate. That's, uh, thank you so much for those very powerful thoughts. I think you're right. You're exactly right on the, how we need to hold our leaders accountable. And it's not enough just to have a, a show of, of support. You need to actually have action and support. Um, though I do think that presentation of, of, of women that have a, you know, achieved power and are using it to um, help other women is, is a powerful thing. We, this, this year in the United States, we got our first ever uh, woman vice president, only took us 250 some years. And, and hopefully we'll have a woman president in, in the near future. Do you, when do you see Mexico electing a woman president? Do you think that'll happen soon? And will it be you? Oh my God, <laughs> I wish. I feel that Mexico still has very rooted within its cultural structures, patriarchy, 
right? And I think that the fact that AMLO denies that this is a problem and denies feminists and denies the gender equality issue is only a portrayal of what's happening deeper inside within Mexico, right? So the fact that he says that women are already equal and that there's nothing to do and, you know, perpetuating this issue or this, this viewpoint that women go to the streets because they're very emotional and they, they are exaggerated and they really have nothing to complain about, that shows in my perspective, how very much we are not ready to have a women president yet. I mean, I wish I could I could say that we are, and I dream of the day that that happens, but I, I don't think that's something that we're going to be seeing in the short term, at least. Well, if in 20 years you are elected president, we'll expect you back here for a follow-up conversation. <laughs> um, I'm sure our, our listeners will be eager for that. So we've had this wonderful opportunity to talk about identity, opportunity, and change, and thinking about these government themes and the themes that revolve uh, around these major topics. And obviously, we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the most important uh, topic in Latin America, which is the food. <laughs> so I would be very, very, very interested in hearing, especially as an Ecuadorian, what makes Mexican food the best food in Latin America, and specifically food from Oaxaca. Dude, it's a fact. You can Google it. Oaxaca has ah. food in the world. <laughs> this is not a biased opinion. This is a fact. Um, <laughs> I think that food from Oaxaca is so special because how connected we are to our indigenous roots, most of the ingredients and most of the ways in which dishes are prepared remain to have, you know, like they are all based on this indigenous traditions, like even the way they're prepared. There's this thing we have, which is called mole, which is like a salsa that we eat with chicken or with pork or beef. But we actually have seven, but there's this one particular mole that we do with chocolate and it's actually kind of spicy, that requires the, the, the mole to be like moved for an entire day. So I, I'm, not an, I'm not an expert on food, I'm not a chef. And if my mom hears this, she's gonna kill me because I'm not a cuisine expert. But I feel that the, the fact that we keep on those traditions on the way that we are preparing the food, it does make a difference. I'm, I'm not exactly sure how, but I'm sure that that, that makes a difference on the final taste. And I think it's kind of interesting how, not specifically in Oaxaca, but in other parts of Mexico, we have this blendage of cuisines, right? Like what I said, we have Mexican American food, and there's also this uh, type of Mexican branch of cuisine, which is very much blended with the Spaniard cuisine, which I think is very interesting. So yeah, that, those are my main arguments why Mexico is the best cuisine in the entire world. What are your arguments? So, so Jacqueline, so I agree with you. I'm, I'm with you. Martin has different thoughts. But what I will say, what I, what I think is, is interesting. So um, there are actually two states in Mexico that lay claim to being the originator of mole. One of them, Puebla, which I lived in and had very good mole. So I don't know. I, I, I can't judge because I haven't had pole, or mole oaxaqueño, but mole poblano was very good. I, I, I'm a good, I'm a big pipián guy. 
<laughs> okay, I'll just say this. Puebla has one mole and we have seven. Whoa. <laughs> You're gonna have all the poblanos showing up in your house uh, after this, but, but you can take them. Um, well, I'll, I'll, we, after uh, we all get our vaccines and the pandemic is over, we're gonna have to take a, a, a tasting tour of all the best mm. mole in Oaxaca. So <laughs> very excited <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Perfecto. Okay, well, Jacqueline, thank you so much uh, for joining us for this conversation. It's such a pleasure to hear from you and hear how you think about the world um, and, and you know, how, how you think about Mexico's place in it. Um, we wish you the best of luck this summer um, at the G20. We know that you'll represent your country and the world very well, um, and we look forward to seeing what you do next. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure.